Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Welcome. To the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast. They're a bunch of guys who ain't never played the game, and they never got the girls in high school, and they just want to get in the game. <laughs> With your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. See, the thing is, you guys look at me, you see the backwards hat, the uh, gray socks, the funky outfit, and you say, now this guy's a chump, am I right? up and welcome in you heard it first episode official episode of the hardwood handicappers podcast here on the vcin podcast network we have a lot to get to today a wonderful show for a debut episode and uh by the way officially backed by corporate too now we have a fancy logo uh, officially tied into iheart as well we'll give you details on where you can find and by the way now that we have this official podcast we can say please subscribe, rate, and review, because we definitely need them, especially get it off the ground. All right, we have a lot to get to uh, in this show. We have some really smart and wonderful guests, too. Uh, Drew Dinzik is going to be with us in a couple of minutes. I, I guess I'm, that's still the broadcast part of me. You can fast forward to it if you want. Uh, great conversation, though, about the Miami Heat, Toronto Raptors, some general handicapping stuff in the association as well. And then, of course, the story, I think, of the season up to this point, the Utah Jazz and how hot they have been. Andy Larson, Utah Jazz and NBA beat writer, will be with us at the bottom half of this program, too, Salt Lake Tribune as we get into the nuts and bolts of what the Utah Jazz have done. And that's where we're going to start. 
our first episode of the Hardwood Handicappers because a 114-89 win over the Los Angeles Lakers last night. Utah Jazz cover as a nine-point favorite and continue to dominate their competition. 26-6 and on the season, three-and-a-half game lead over the Los Angeles Clippers. And the sports betting story here, the run that this team has been on, you know, you're supposed to, at least uh, in terms of sports betting and against the spread, the spread's supposed to be the great equalizer, and it has not been for the Utah Jazz. Now 21-3 and against the spread in their last 24 games. In those 24 games, Jazz, second in offensive rating, 119.5, first in defensive rating, 105.7, and lead the league in net rating at plus 13.8, so they outscore their opponents by 13.8 points every 100 possessions. To give you an idea of how dominant this team has been through these 24 games, the second team in terms of net rating over the stretch has been the Los Angeles Clippers. They are 5.3 points worse than Utah in terms of net rating. The Jazz are just kicking ass and taking names, and it has been absolutely incredible. And we finally start to see some respect for Utah in the futures market, right? I was going through some of the numbers from a futures perspective, and you take a look around, and you can find now prices uh, as low as plus 275. On the Utah Jazz to win the Western Conference, that would be William Hill and the Westgate Superbook. Highest price you can get now in terms of winning the conference is going to be over at points bet and DraftKings for those of you in those jurisdictions at 5-1. to one. And then you look at the NBA Finals. I mean, this is nuts. Now we've approached single digits pretty much everywhere else. Plus 550, plus 650, William Hill, Circa, respectively. Superbook at 5-1. to one. The two double-digit spots, again, if you're in their jurisdictions, points bet and DraftKings still a 10-1 to one on the Utah Jazz to win the NBA Finals. It's been an incredible run, and I think it is fair to ask the question, can the Utah Jazz realistically win an NBA title? We're going to cover this topic with Andy because you look at this. We've talked about this, right? We've seen this from the Jazz before, the year where they beat the Oklahoma City Thunder in the first round. Remember the second half of that season? They went on a 21-2 and run. They were absolutely incredible, and yes, they won a playoff series, but Houston handled them rather easily, right? You look at just the overall picture of this Jazz team, they have been dominant in years past, but have fallen short in the postseason. And it's going to be, I personally cannot wait to see what this team is because they are playing 2021 basketball. They're taking over 40% of their attempts from three-point range. They have five guys who shoot a high volume of threes and shoot over 40% from beyond the arc. And it's not just kick it around and shoot it. It is four guys who can realistically attack off the bounce and create some suction on that defense to then kick it out to open three-point shooters. Bogdanovich can do it. Mitchell can do it. Conley can do it. Right, All of these, Royce O'Neal can do it to a certain extent as well. These are all guys who can really do this. And then you have the guy in the middle, Rudy Gobert, prowling and doing everything they possibly can from a defensive standpoint to be one of the best teams in the NBA. But we've seen it year in and year out. We've seen the Milwaukee Bucks be the best team in the NBA in the regular season and fall flat in the second round. Uh, we have seen, and this is just an unfair uh, shot because he was the head coach of both of those teams. We've seen 60-win Atlanta teams right fall short of expectations in postseasons. Uh, we have seen it many times. We have seen a Los Angeles Clippers team look dominant at times when they're fully healthy and blow a 3-1 series lead. So what the Jazz are going to be is absolutely the story of the year, and especially from a sports betting perspective. So I'll bring in Jacob Roach, producer uh, of the Hardwood Handicapper podcast, and of course uh, everything else uh, on the network. I don't know what you do anymore. I know it's the nuts <laughs> for sure, but that's about it. So you're a big hoop head. Mm -hmm. well, what have you thought of Utah up to this point, just from you know watching on the outside, looking in, and what you have seen from them, and watching and comparing them to Utah teams of the past? You know what to you is the difference? Because to me, it's obviously the three point shooting, the efficiency for which they play offensively. Uh, but again, it, it, it's great to do it in the regular season. You got to do it in the post. Going into the season, I picked the Jazz to finish seventh in the West. 
Really quickly, uh, was that part of the NBA guide? Yep, part of the betting guide. Uh, again, I think I've brought this up before, but for those who are listening, he deserves credit. Um, Aaron Renning picked the Utah Jazz to be the top overall seed wow. in the Western Conference this year. Uh, now, I feel like if you were to ask Aaron Renning, honestly, I don't know if he would say, yeah, I expect them to go on a 22-2 run. <laughs> Uh, in the uh, you know in the regular season at one point, uh, but ER did have the foresight to do that, and I was here early. You know I loved them when they got Conley last summer, and I ran out to go bet them, and ultimately it fell flat. And then I you know got a little gun shy coming into this year, so I was a year ahead of time. But Aaron Renning gets a lot of credit for that, and you know nobody's going to kill you if you're going to pick him seventh. But you're an idiot. Uh, you know I'm a big anti-jazz guy, okay. and this year has really changed me. This is the best team basketball we I think we've seen since the last year of the dominant Warriors. Like that that has been my big draw to this team. They're playing. A, on the Hoop Collective, which I'm sure we're going to reference all the time because we both love it, they talked about how it's becoming a Spurs-esque culture there. And, like, the play style is kind of Spurs-esque, too, and the ball movement. Jordan Clarkson, I can't, like, I don't understand it. I've been What he's become? I've been out on him since day one when it was, like, the uh, D'Angelo Russell-Jordan Clarkson argument. I was like, dude, it's Russell. Wrong on that one, too. There's no team and no more players in the league I've been more wrong on than the Jazz roster. It's ridiculous. You know, it's... We, we talk about quality of play all the time, and like people think the quality of play is down in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And I think the Jazz is like a really good example that is actually not. You're just, you, you pick the spots to say quality of play is down, but every game they play, they're playing beautiful basketball. Right. Well, and I also like that because uh, I think there's a lot of complaints. Where like, all they do is sit back and shoot threes. So, well, what do the Jazz do? They, shoot, they take over 42% of their attempt from beyond the arc. Yeah. But the, the volume at which they are doing it, and still the pace at which they are completing these shots, you know, the efficiency at which they're hitting these shots is absolutely incredible. And they are relentless, you know, from a first to fourth quarter. It's look at the the Charlotte Hornets the other night where in the fourth quarter, they come out and they absolutely blitz Charlotte after a back and forth game and one in which they trailed and they come out and they annihilate them and they end up covering a really big number. So I, again, how this works in the postseason where things slow down, you know, (laughs) as we uh, constantly say all the time when, you know, there's numbers that say it, it doesn't, That'll remain to be seen. And look, I think there's also something to be said that when the Los Angeles Clippers were finally fully healthy, they come back with their full roster for one game and they win, mm-hmm. right? They, like there, are, mm-hmm. there are matchups to exploit there with the Utah Jazz. And when you have a team like the Los Angeles Clippers who can switch almost everything if they want to, when you have a big and Serge Ibaka who can bring Rudy Gobert out on the perimeter, right, and make you think a little bit more about some of those, you know, drop coverages that they're playing with Rudy all the time, like, those are things that other teams can exploit. But for the most part, this has been absolutely great. And it's been a balanced team, right? Which is why one of the more fascinating topics to talk about uh, in terms of the Utah Jazz, the team in terms of, I would say, output, right? In terms of which players deserve credit for what, right? And the overall pecking order of what has become a really hot topic in most valuable player, mm-hmm. an MVP. Because I took a little bit. Of Donovan Mitchell at 100 to one, mm-hmm. mainly because you figure that's going to start to cut, right? And I think a lot of people will look at the Utah Jazz and think that uh, they are the best player. And it's funny because a couple of days ago, uh, or was it yesterday? Whenever I was last on with Gil, you know, he played me a clip that I was on his show about two or three weeks ago, and it was me kind of actually making the case against Donovan Mitchell. And I, I say in the clip, but it's it's funny because it, I was right and wrong at the same time because in the clip I say, well, if you look at the numbers just purely statistically. There's a lot of categories in which Donovan Mitchell is like the third best player, mm-hmm. right? In terms of points per shot attempt, in terms of PER, player efficiency ratings, uh, which, by the way, it's a weird thing with me. It's not per, it's PER. I don't know. A lot of people call it. Uh, but regardless, all of those, we can look at all these numbers. He's probably the third most important player. Mm-hmm. And then you get the straw poll from Tim Bontemps, 
He was the second most important player, but three guys got, you know, votes for MVP. And so I wonder from this perspective, as his odds continue to shrink, but then you get a game like last night, right? We're recording this on a Thursday live, by the way, from Bar Canada. You can come out and stare awkwardly as we record it too if you want. <laughs> um, but if you're talking about like last night, last night was such a Utah Jazz game where they build up a 13-point lead before Donovan Mitchell even scores. Mm-hmm. I don't think they had, I'll double check, I don't think one guy had more than 20 points uh, last night against the Los Angeles Lakers. It was an extremely balanced effort from Utah overall. So while I'm sitting on 101, and while the odds continue to shrink in favor of Donovan Mitchell, you can tell the market is kind of along the same lines because you're, you're talking about as low as 21 over at William Hill and Westgate's at 30. Mm-hmm. But then you're talking about as high as one as 80 to 1 at points bet, 66 to 1, 65 to 1 over at FanDuel. The prices are him on him are wide-ranging, and I think it reflects the actual voting that we saw, not only in the poll, but the perception of Utah as a whole in terms of who was most important to this team. I think this is a bigger conversation of, like, the flaw in the MVP because as great as it is to have great value on Donovan Mitchell and that, yeah, you can spit all those facts, and, like, to the, I don't want to say casual, like, they would never think it, and he would not be MVP, I think, because of the appearance of the MVP award because I just don't think he's going to be flashy dominant enough to be MVP but you break it down and he's like you said he's one of the most important he's the most important player to the best team in the league should he not be MVP and even if this even if they close best team on the season I still don't think he can win it just because of market and namesake Mm -hmm. I mean Carl Malone won it in Utah but that's a confusing story to go down because a lot of people didn't think he should have won it it was like Jordan fatigue, and there were no other options. This year, it's wide open, which I think kind of hurts Mitchell in a way. Yeah, you had six players last night against the Los Angeles Lakers score 14 to 18 points. Nobody scored more than 20 for the Utah Jazz. <laughs> Mitchell was, uh, you know, he was hunting for a triple-double. He finished with 13, 10, uh, and 8. He was two assists away from it. Uh, but it, last night was the perfect case to be made against Mitchell and just the perfect case for Utah just being a team, right? Mm-hmm. Just how balanced the effort was yesterday. But I, I think really, too, and it spins off into this bigger conversation, the MVP as a whole, mm-hmm. because the picture has started to really kind of crumble. Like, oh, yeah. there are so many different ways now to go with this argument in terms of most valuable player in the NBA. And in a narrative, there's one that I really want to push back on, at least in terms of the narrative around LeBron James. And I'll make this pretty clear for those who are listening. This is not a – this is not going to turn into – me stumping for LeBron to win MVP because I do have him at three to one. I'm totally down with the case over these last five games mm-hmm. that his his case for MVP has crumbled. Right, yeah. he has started to look like frustrated LeBron James. He has looked like first year of Los Angeles LeBron James in that Washington Wizards game. There's a pick and roll situation where Russell Westbrook catches it on the elbow. He's right there on the block. He can try and, tr- and you know try to draw a charge or he can go and help and put a face in. Russ- he doesn't. No. He lets Westbrook get right right to the cup and score. He has the ball down in overtime right by three. He gets to the Staples Center logo and puts up a I just want to go home. It's 945 shot. And Most sure enough, predictable shot. Right. Everybody knew that was coming. So obvious and, from LeBron. And there's like, you know, I was, I was talking with Adam Hill, my buddy works for the RJ. You know, he's been on the network quite a few times. So I'm with Tim on the nightcap a couple of times as well. That like, theoretically, you want to go down and put up an early shot so you can get an offensive rebound. That's not what that was. No. Right. The, he was lucky that Kuzma got the offensive yeah. board and was able to put up a shot. But regardless, right. LeBron and the Lakers, 1-5 in their last six games. LeBron reverting back to that poor form where he's just kind of, kind of pouting and, and unenthused about the situation. The Lakers are banged up. Joel Embiid, recently he's been great. Mm-hmm. But I do like how we kind of have our sliding scale of losses and bad losses because as Joel Embiid has been better as of late, 
They lost two games outright to a shorthanded Portland team. He was on the floor for it. He was on the floor, if you remember, early in the season. They had a game against Brooklyn where Kyrie KD did not play. Mm -hmm. They lost that game. He was on the floor for that one. And I know because I bet them in that game. You know, uh, you can talk about Nikola Jokic, who is the best player on currently the seventh seed in the Western Conference, a team that is fighting to stay above 500, uh, right? And by the way, if we're going to, because again, narrative and record for some reason is part of this when it comes to MVP, if we're going to say that, you know, Steph can't win because his team is losing 18 and 15, by the way, what, what's going on with Jokic in that case? And so I wonder, there's a dark horse that I want to make a, a, a case for, but as we watch the MVP picture kind of just get muddled up and just thrown into the mud, and you can throw them in a hat and pick one out, and I think we can make a really realistic case for any of them, two names stick out to me. It is Steph Curry, and it is James Harden. These are, and I, and like, I will get to the Harden case that I'm going to make, but as you've watched MVP, like, where, where are you feeling about this? Because like, realistically, like, I, this is one of the more thrilling and fun MVP runs, races, that we've, we've had in a really long time. Because there is realistically, in my opinion, five to six guys who can win this thing. I haven't made any MVP bets yet. I'm going to tonight or tomorrow. Because I, I just the have suspense a, is killing I me. have a feel that off of the LeBron like crumbling narrative, like it's about to change. I think Embiid is almost in a way getting hurt because a lot of the attention, some of the, not a lot of the attention, some of the attention right now is on Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons coming out party. Ben Simmons getting together. That hurts his MVP case, right? Ben Simmons isn't, it's not a Katie and Steph thing, but like that's stealing the headlines for Embiid from a uh, MVP case. Jokic, I think, you know, him and Steph, the teams are performing relatively the same record-wise, but Steph has that name that Jokic doesn't, and that hurts him. And I, Steph is one of the guys I'm going to go bet on. At, at, I'm going to try to get him at uh, – he's 12-1 to 1 in Vegas. I, I'm trying to get somebody to get me a 14-1, to 1, like, before it moves. You're going to mattress back it? Just go around and tell them they'll get free, free publicity? Yeah. Just, it's, just it's, let me make this hardcore bet. They're going to fly me in out east. It's a big A couple thing. hundred thousand or what? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, I'm going to take a loan out to bet it. You should always do that, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. Steph Curry leads the league in offensive real plus minus. Is second in real plus minus wins added. The second leading scorer at 30 points per game. He is the leading shooter in terms of three-point field goals made and attempts per game at 11.9. He has been unreal. His numbers are on par with his unanimous MVP season. Mm -hmm. And yet you're still looking around 14 to 1 over at DraftKings, 12 to 1 at FanDuel, 12 to 1 at the Westgate. Right now, as we're speaking and recording this on a Thursday, 11 to 1 at MGM, cheapest prices over at William Hill, plus 750. Curry is one that I've really come around on in terms of being a legitimate candidate to win the MVP. That team's good. I, 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 the war, that's the team I've watched the most this year because mm. of scheduling. Like I, I love watching, catching that late game. That team's good. That team's exciting. And what, Wiseman being back is a big factor for Curry. He plays. I really like his game when Wiseman is on the floor with him. He's never had a. It's like a broken neck, but he's never had a center like that. He's mm. never had this athletic long center. And Wiseman's big thing is you know, he's in foul trouble every night, but. When they're together, there's more speed to that team, and Steph really has seems to thrive in that. To give you an idea of the load that is on Curry's shoulders, I mentioned again, leads the league in offensive real plus minus everything. They're still 21st in offensive efficiency. Like what he means to Golden State in terms of like their offensive output because they have next to no shot creation mm -hmm. when he's out there. And you see it in those non-Curry minutes, but dude, yeah, like, the more I look at this, and again, like, we should open our minds a little bit more to the player on a average team and his, you know, his worth to that team. It should totally be a massive part of this. Uh, cleaning the glass, 
Warriors on the season plus 0.2 in terms of their net rating. Take Steph Curry off the floor. Those non-Steph minutes, negative 8.5 in terms of the net rating for the Golden State Warriors. Negative 8.5. You put them on, plus 3.2. That's, it's, it's incredible what he means to the, to the Golden State Warriors. But the case I also want to make here, and I got a lot of pushback on this. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> likes him as a player, right? He plays an unattractive style, or he did, I should say, when he was in Houston. But there is no denying how great James Harden has been for the Brooklyn Nets and for this year. So here is my case. I'm going to paint this for you. He has played in every game but one for Brooklyn since he got there. The one that he missed was due to a legitimate injury, all right, because there's going to be a lot of, he rested, he sucks, load management. It was due to a, it was an actual injury that he had suffered. He leads the league in assists, 11.2, by a wide margin. Next closest player is Westbrook at 9.7. He's the 15th leading scorer in the league. He has the better player efficiency rating, if this is your thing, than both Kyrie and Kevin Durant. He's 14th in overall real plus minus, fourth in offensive real plus minus, and he is an Iron Man. Like he is oh, yeah. going to play almost every single one of yeah. these games. As Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving missed time due to, you know, back-to-backs and resting and things like that, which they're going to, he's going to be out there. And he has been massive for what they're doing. So if you're telling me this guy can get close to averaging a near triple-double, which right now he's in the range of like eight assists, or excuse me, eight rebounds, I think he's like 7.9, something mm -hmm. like that, 8.3. He's the best player. He plays every single game from here on out. And they're the number one overall seed in the Eastern Conference. I think it's why you've started to see his odds shrink from as high as 75 to 1, which Mitch and I were talking about just like four days ago, to now across the board, you're talking 22 to 1 at William Hill, 33 to 1 at MGM and points bet, 40 to 1 at DraftKings, 36 to 1 at FanDuel, 20 to 1 over at the Westgate. Am I crazy for wanting to paint this picture here? No, I'm in on this because I think he might have, next to Steph, I think he has the hardest situation coming in. He comes to a team that isn't built for his style of play. He comes for a team that's coming off the Kyrie fiasco with the missing games. You have KD in and out of the lineup. It's tough to get a rhythm, right? He, he, every night, he doesn't know who's going to be on the floor. And to your point, I think one of his biggest skill sets is his availability to do what he does. And a lot of it's body type. We make fun of Harden for his size. That's why he's always available because right. he, he, he has some skin. Like, he's thick. That's good. What he's doing is he's he kind of replugged his brain in a way, the way he's playing. He's not playing like Harden in Houston. And a lot of people who hate the NBA mostly hate the Rockets and they hate Harden because of that. And they're not watching these Nets game with the, like, right scope. He's, this is a totally different James Harden. It's a, like... He looks like the smartest basketball in the league, basketball player in the league at nights with this Nets team. And I, I, I'm in on this. Like, you can't tell me that the dominance and they're they're dominant. At, like the the offensive efficiency is coming from him guiding this team. He's the crux of this whole thing with the Nets. I, I think no Harden trade. Sure, they have more depth and they have more size, but it doesn't wash out like it does. They're so offensively sound now with him that it doesn't even matter that they don't have defense. Like, it, it's all him. It's all Harden. All right, I'm going to uh, push back, too, on the AD is more important than LeBron thing as well. <laughs> but we're going to do that as part of the wrap-up. We're going to have Roach's ramblings as well. We're going to discuss the Boston Celtics, your team, what's going Jeez. wrong with them. Uh, but on the other side, we'll have Drew Dinzik with us as we discuss two teams in the Eastern Conference to keep an eye on in the second half. This is the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast. Interact with the show on Twitter at me, JVT, at Roach underscore 97, and at VSIN Live. All right, let's welcome in our uh, first guest of the day. 
Drew Dinzik, uh, who appears regularly on VSIN, uh, of course, with Gil Alexander as well at the time, but an NFL NBA handicapper for NBC Sports Edge, host of the Deep Dive Pod as well. Uh, Drew, so I wanted to start with this because, one, I appreciate the time, uh, but I have, of course, uh, followed all your stuff from afar. I've never really gotten to talk to you, but you contributed to the NBA uh, betting guide that we had earlier this year as well. So before we kind of get into some, like, you know, specific team topics in the NBA this year, I just kind of wanted to ask you, you know, it, it's kind of rare to find somebody who will dedicate time to handicap in the NBA regular season on a day-to-day basis. So if you don't mind me asking, like, you know, how you kind of got it started, why did you want to get into the NBA, just a big hoops head at the start? Because it is kind of rare to see somebody uh, in the market go headfirst into the regular season. Because every time I talk to somebody about it, they're like, I don't know how you do it. It's a pain in the ass. Humans tells me it's nothing but aggravation. That's what the NBA stands for. Uh, so, like, how do you get into it? And uh, pretty much how do you like it? Because I love doing this on a day-to-day basis. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you can find an edge, the volume that's available is so much broader than you can find in college football, NFL. Um, And in my opinion, at least, there's obviously there's obviously very, very sharp players that are playing the NBA daily that are shaping these markets that are making it tough to, to grind out an edge. But if you've got, you know, if you've got a good solid tool, if you are watching enough. Uh, and you are paying attention specifically if you have good information, good insight on in terms of player availability, you can absolutely capture EV betting the NBA. And I first got into it because I basically kind of, I, I would get to the end of the NFL season where I focus, you know, most of my attention in the fall and just be looking for, okay, well, what next? Uh, you know, we got a gap here. I never really had a good feeling for baseball. Um, you know, there's some, some niche sports that might be fun. Um, college basketball, let's try college basketball. Well, you know, couple did that for a couple of years in the early, you know, 2010s and never really found much success with it. And a lot of it was because teams turn over so much year after year, you really, uh, and, you know, most of the edge in college basketball, in my opinion, really comes in that first, uh, you know, month or two months while, while the market is kind of figuring out, catching up to teams. And so once the NFL is a wrap, you know, the markets in the and in, in the college basketball are just just impossibly tight. Um, and so I kind of migrated there and started betting NBA playoffs. And I was like, OK, this is fun now. This is this is something I can get very into. Uh, and I figured out maybe about four or five years ago, OK, in order to get do well in the NBA playoffs, you really need to kind of understand coaching tendencies. You need to I need to understand sort of true team strength um, and you know what adjustments are going to be available for certain teams uh, in in a given series. You know what's this coach going to go to, and is is that going to work against this other team, right? And just trying to understand the fabric of a series meant that you know I needed to pay attention to the regular season because you can't answer those questions if you're just j- dropping in round one of the playoffs. Um, and so, you know, for, I think about this is the, my fifth season handicapping every day in the NBA. Um, and the first two were very, very challenging. I thought I could just put together kind of team level numbers and, you know, crank out an edge and, you know, do well for the first month. And then all of a sudden my numbers weren't working. And then I'm like, well, should I be fading this model? And then, you know, you just go through the highs and lows of, of an NBA season while you're trying to figure out if you have an edge and where that is. Um, and you know, but then once the you know playoffs roll around those first couple seasons, all of a sudden I was having way more success than I had in the past. And I would attribute a lot of that to just kind of paying attention to the regular season. Um, and now, you know, it's, it's second nature, you know, I can't imagine a life where, you know, throughout the winter months, I'm not uh, paying attention to the NBA markets every day. And, um, you know, I actually, I've got, I've gotten almost come full circle to where I like betting the regular season now more than I like betting the playoffs. Uh, especially when you go back to the bubble and there was, you know, so little change from, 
uh, game to game because home court wasn't flipping flopping. And, uh, you know, there was a couple of unique aspects you could pick off, uh, you know, some soft lines when they restarted. But once we got to the playoffs, the markets were real tight. So, um, you know, it's it's been a fun evolution of being an NBA handicapper, but uh, it's taken me a good uh, you know, several years of really paying attention to the market, really kind of fine tuning, uh, you know, a model and an edge to to be able to do this successfully. Yeah, this is like I would consider this probably like my third year of doing it full time, uh, right? Uh, as well, and like uh, just the the evolution and the ability to grow too has been great. But you hit on something that I really love, like the the what I love the most about the NBA, you know, matchups and understanding what teams are good at, bad at, and and coaching schemes and things like that. Like, let's be honest, Drew. And I, I don't want to watch a Big Ten overly coached basketball game where, you know, we're, we're talking about like, what, like <laughs> 60 possessions oh, a game God, yeah. and it's like 45 to 50. Yes. Like, let's get that out of here, huh? College basketball is not very entertaining <laughs> once you watch NBA regularly. It's just not. I mean, the quality is not as good, period. And, you know, it's it's kids. And it's and you're right. The, you know, the Big Ten might be the most competitive, but sure enough, that that's a slog. That's a that's a chore. Yep. Um, meanwhile, you know, the way the NBA has evolved in this, I'll say the Steph Curry area where the Steph Curry era uh, where, you know, it's been pretty obvious through results that teams that focus on, you know, accumulating shooting talent and let their let their guards go nuts from the three-point line, that's a viable strategy now in the NBA. That's made the league more entertaining in my opinion because you've, you know, you've you've really unlocked the offensive potential of a lot of these teams. So, it has it, the map, but but you're right. Uh, at this point, um, some of the most tried and true angles that will last you all season uh, are your, you know, your team by team matchups and, you know, trying to ma you know, find matchup advantages, disadvantages that aren't obvious by, you know, by the numbers, because, you know, uh, uh, all the other angles rest and, um, uh, you know, player absence, uh, you know, you got to be first to the market on player absence yep. if that's your angle. And that's tough. Uh, and if and and rest might have been, you know, that was a golden angle like three seasons ago, but now it's just absolutely beaten into the uh, into the numbers by the time the limits go up. Um, and so you can't really reliably use that. Um, and so you're really stuck with, OK, well, let's uh, let's look at a team um, and try to evaluate specific matchup tendencies and uh, and see if we can suss out an edge there. And I mean, you know, I, I you know, just specifically tonight, uh, and, you know, and I'm not sure if this gets posted on Thursday or not, but, um, uh, you know, you have a team like the Sixers and the Mavericks going head to head tonight. And I, you know, the absolute first thing that screams as I look at the matchup between these teams is how in the world are the Mavericks expect, ex expected to stop Joel Embiid in this mm -hmm. spot? You know, you have a limited Porzingis and a limited uh, Maxi Cleaver, and they're not good defensively against big men anyway. And, you know, and, and, and Bede's playing at an MVP level. Uh, and, you know, can you counter with, you know, you know, getting the most out of Doncic? Well, he's going up against an absolutely spec, you know, an elite perimeter defender in Ben Simmons. So, you know, it's a it's it's one of those matchups where, you know, you'd like to buy into the Mavericks sort of, um, you know, finding some form, getting into playoff contention here after kind of a slow start to their season. But, uh, you know, looking at this particular matchup against the Sixers, I just, I can't see any, you know, any hope for them. Uh, and then you can completely flip that on its head when you get to Saturday, they take on the Nets. Yep. Uh, you know, if the Nets, the Nets are defending the perimeter quite poorly. They're just beating you over the head with offense. And, you know, that's the, exactly the type of game that the Mavericks like to play into. Uh, and you're probably going to get, what, four or five points in that one. Uh, you know, with the Mavs on the road in that spot, especially if they, you know, if they don't look great tonight against the Sixers, maybe you get an especially inflated line there. Um, and they should be live against the Nets team who, you know, are they came off of an absolutely white hot win streak on the road. Uh, they come in, they come home, play a, t a couple of teams that are just 
you know, absolutely struggling in the Kings and then the Magic tonight. Um, so, you know, they may, they may be heading into this all-star break thinking, okay, job well done, guys. Uh, and I could see the Mavs kind of catching them a little bit sleepy on Saturday. Yeah, and so this actually brings me to a bigger topic I'm going to pick your brain on, too, because one of the things that I like to do is is track, like, essentially, you know, market power ratings and the perception of teams as well. And, and you do see changes in the way teams are, are rated by the market. Case in point, you know, the Brooklyn Nets. And, again, you know, this will get posted on uh, on Thursday, but by the time some people listen to these games, will be already in the books. Uh, but what I think is a good example is Brooklyn, right? Brooklyn today is an eight-and-a-half-point favorite over Orlando. Two weeks ago, before they had won this, what is it now, seven, eight in a row, whatever they're at at this point, you know, they weren't going to be laying this many points to Orlando. The perception of them been at all-time low. I mean, for crying out loud, they closed as an underdog at home against Indiana right at the start of this this winning streak. Oh, yeah, wow. Right, you know, and so, like, <laughs> I'm wondering, like, how, how often does that factor into your handicap? Because it's a big part of mine is when I see the market and the perception of teams start to ebb and flow and, and numbers that are out there that probably shouldn't be. Like, to me, when I see Brooklyn minus eight and a half today against Orlando, to me, that tells me, okay, the market is starting to adjust and catch up with actually how good this team is starting to become yeah I, I, it's a it's an enormously important part and you have to you don't you you can think of nba teams in terms of team level power numbers that's a fine starting approach you can think of a, a team power number as just a composite of the players available if you want to go player level that is a fine approach but any given time you have sort of a, a number on a team it's in a range of you know what that team is capable of right like they have a range it's not just a single number and you know there are teams right now that are towards the bottom of their range like the celtics and they're their team and the lakers they're playing at the bottom of their range and you have to kind of respect that when you see a market perception you know the market's perceiving you know how they're how they're playing and then and, you know vice versa the nets i would guess are approaching sort of the top of their range people are like wow you know these guys can't lose you know they they go on this road trip they were underdog like you said you know you know that there's there is a for sure a tendency for uh the market to adjust teams up as they do well and down as they do poorly. Uh, and at some point you will see an overreaction. You will catch an, an opportunity where uh, they've gone outside of what is a reasonable range for that team. And, you know, that throughout the middle of the season, through the dog days of the NBA season, that's probably uh, one of the most important kind of concepts that you need to uh, be thinking pretty carefully about as you're, you know, looking to try to um, buy low and sell high on given teams. Yep. And so I, I think this leads us to one team that, that I think is uh, potentially, and I, I know you talked about it uh, over on NBC Sports. I saw a clip with you and Gil talking about them as well, uh, the Miami Heat. So the Miami Heat were a team that uh, throughout the beginning of the year, right, ravaged by injury, ravaged by COVID. Uh, we had Tyler Hero out with a neck issue. We had Jimmy Butler out with COVID. He reportedly lost like 10 to 12 pounds when he was dealing with the disease. So he comes back. It was January 30th when he, when he returns. And I thought the market was a little too quick, right? The market was like, cool. Heroes back, Butler's back. Oh, this yeah. is an Eastern Conference team. Let's lay nine and a half against the Wizards. You know, let's let's lay <laughs> seven and a half against Sacramento. Yeah. And, and ultimately, that doesn't work out. But what the thing that I have seen, which I've really liked, and their offensive rating over this four-game winning streak they're on has started to tick up. Their defense has always been there, though, right? Like, despite the fact that since Butler's come back, they're 22nd in offensive efficiency. They're about plus 2.3, plus 2.4 in net rating because their defense has been so good. So now you're just starting to kind of wait and see, is this offense going to start to get its legs underneath them? So I had pegged Miami, Drew, as like a team that I have circled in terms of potential buying low in the futures market, uh, potentially in the second half, really started to take off because they're a team that was held back due to a availability or lack thereof, as opposed to just playing at the bottom of what they're capable of doing. Would you agree with the assessment that, that Miami in this Eastern Conference from potentially this point on is a team to watch and potentially play as they start to get better? 
Yeah, a hundred percent. I think I'm. I've now backed them three or four games in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, they are four and zero against the spread in that stretch. Yep. Um, I can't actually. You know, there was one game where they were, I think, seven point favorites, and I laid off. Um, but I took them against the the tougher competition. Uh, well, they they had a disappointing game against the Warriors. I backed them the next night against the Kings. They were excellent. Uh, then they go and they get the upset against the Lakers. Uh, laid off the next game and then uh, backed them against the Raptors last night, and that was fun. It was it was such a fun game to watch because the Raptors were absolutely white hot shooting in that first quarter. Heat never really were faced. Never really lost, you know, never, never didn't, didn't really show uh, much of a, oh man, here we go again. I thought we had turned the corner and now, you know, now we're struggling. Like, you know, no, no panic, veteran team, uh, cool, calm and collected. Uh, and sure enough, the second quarter, uh, they make a couple of defensive adjustments. Um, the, the thing that they do defensively that I find so impressive and important relative to a lot of the other teams in the NBA is their transition defense. Um, so many teams in the NBA, uh, especially in the regular season, are kind of sleepwalking at times and like, oh, well, we're going to get some transition buckets and, you know, that'll that'll kind of that'll kind of keep our offensive afloat if we're not getting decent looks, if our shooters are a little cold, like at least we'll get our transition points. The Heat can turn that faucet off so effectively and it is awesome to watch. In fact, I would kind of look back to the, uh, you know, the series they beat the um uh, the Bucks last year, and you know, a lot of people were critical of, uh, you know, of Budenholzer's rotation, and you know, some of the defensive strategy, and how, you know, how aggressive they were crashing the paint and just giving up open threes. Um, but even more so, I felt like they did not have an answer offensively when uh, the Heat turned off the, uh, you know, the faucet from yep. transition point standpoint. And you know, they go into that next series against the Celtics, and you think, okay, well, the Celtics don't really need transition points. This might be a tougher test for the Heat. What do the Heat do? They roll out a zone. Defensive <laughs> yep. strategy that completely flummoxed Brad Stevens, and to this day, other teams when they're going up against the Celtics, if things aren't going well, they're like, "All right, well, let's try the zone and see if that stumps them." And sure enough, it still has. And it's it's pretty cool that um, you know that Spolstra is kind of uh, flying under the radar as one of these really just kind of mastermind coaches, and sort of as he's gone through the years, he's continuing to get better uh, as a head coach. And, you know, sure enough, the the defensive strength overall for this Heat team is going to make them an exceptionally tough out come playoff time. And, uh, yeah, that when they were, you know, whatever, 11 and 15 or whatever the bottom of the, you know, the bottom of the record was there for them, uh, I definitely was pretty aggressive in the futures market getting down on some uh, Heat to win the Southeast and, uh, and then Heat to win the Eastern Conference. So at this point right now, we're talking like 15, 30 to 1 for, for Eastern Conference and, and uh, finals respectively. Would you say there's still any value in the market for them right now? Yeah, no, my true price on them for the Eastern Conference is close to 10 to 1. Yep. So I think that's that does still have value. If it, and, you know, it's it's surprising that it hasn't moved in more. Um, I want to say prior to their their impressive win against the Raptors last night, I saw some 16s to 1, 17 to 1 maybe at a couple of the offshores. So it, it there is still a little bit of a market lag here in terms of recognizing their potential in the Eastern Conference. And, I mean, I get it. People look at the Nets. They see the superstars. They see Kevin Durant likely available come, you know, come May. They're going to be extremely tough to beat. Yes, um, but that team has – you know, some pretty incredible defensive woes. And, uh, you know, yes, we are in a new era in the NBA. And yes, if you can score 130 every night, you're probably going to win a lot of games. Um, But it's, you know, I still have, uh, you know, a lot of questions about what this team, you know, ultimately what their roster looks like. They may make more moves. Um, I'm not sure, you know, we've never really seen Mike D'Antoni have, uh, you know, a ton of 
answers in a playoff series if things aren't going right. And he's obviously carrying a lot of the load in terms of what they're doing offensively. I know Steve Nash is technically the head coach, but I'm not exactly sure what his philosophy really entails. And yeah, can you get a, a team that's, you know, has a veteran head coach, uh, you know, come up against that Nets team in the round two or the Eastern Conference finals and give them a, you know, a, a true test or a true scare? Absolutely. Is that team the Miami Heat? Entirely possible. Uh, so yeah, I think, you know, uh, the, that kind of that, the middle class there, Sixers, uh, Celtics, uh, you know, I guess uh, Bucks too, for that matter. You know, the, you know, those aren't really inspiring prices at all. But the Heat uh, absolutely ought to be in the mix with those teams. And you, you just have to look at the preseason, uh, you know, win totals. Like all the right. Heat were, you know, absolutely expected to be in the mix, and you know, to come off their prior just because they had, you know, uh, you know, massive absences and COVID issues for the first month of the season. So what, you know, it's, it's pretty wild that uh, the market can, uh, can be so shy on this team. Yep. I, I would agree. And, and you know, the other team that I had circled and maybe not so much in the futures market, but for a team that I think in the second half uh, is due for a really big push in terms of the record, in terms of results and potentially uh, on a night to night basis, the team that actually, you know, Miami played yesterday, the Toronto Raptors, because I think, you know, I tended to, and I did this at the beginning of the season too, Drew, where we forget what this team has kind of gone through, right? From an anecdotal standpoint, they're in Orlando the longest because they get there first, they get all the way uh, to the, was it Eastern Conference semifinals. They're playing on essentially a neutral court at home uh, in Tampa. They have they already had 20 road games in the first half of the season. I think it's six back-to-back -back situations. When you look at a team like Toronto, who has slowly started to improve from a record perspective after that two and eight start, and then you look at the second half because these second half schedules are out right you look at some of the details of, of Toronto's schedule coming up here uh, we're talking about a team that yeah. in the second half is going to have I think a total of 14 games against teams like Atlanta Chicago Cleveland Detroit Oklahoma City Orlando and Washington uh, they have a majority of home games they're gonna have a lot of back-to-backs uh, but am I wrong in thinking that Toronto is a team that I have circled that in the second half uh, I will try to play on them pretty often early because I think the schedule is going to set up wisely for them and I think the perception is still a little too low up potentially on this team Hundred percent agree. Yep. <laughs> I, right. I don't know now. I don't want to go so far as to say that they are a buy-on in the futures market, right? Um, because I still have huge reservations about how the game, NBA is kind of it, the NBA is changing to a degree where uh, you know with with the lack of fans, with the lack of crowd noise, and again, this may this may change as well as you know some of these arenas start to allow fans. But within the lack of fan noise, in the lack of crowds, we have seen pretty clearly. Open threes are just, they're going in at a rate that was seen, that seems impossible. Like, it's just crazy. And one of the things that the Raptors were kind of never really penalized for in the Nick Nurse era uh, was giving up too many open threes, particularly corner threes. And all of a sudden, like, you know, this is a team that used to be clearly top three in the NBA defensively regularly. And then all of a sudden this year, their rankings are, you know, have dropped like a rock. And it's all kind of born out of their open three-point percentage by their opponents has gone, you know, through the through the roof. And if they recognize that and can make adjustments and, you know, stop selling out to, to clog the paint and, you know, sh shoe guys off the three-point line a little bit more aggressively, then that can change. Um, but they lost a couple of key assistants in the offseason. Uh, they, lo they lost the assistant in season right. to the, uh, to the T-Wolves, which was wild. Um, but you know, that, that attrition does seem to be putting a little bit of pressure on Nick Nurse in terms of finding an answer here. Um, but you know, your, your underlying comment, I a hundred percent agree with like this, you no know, market is assessing this Raptors team. Like they're, you know, a little like a 500 team or better. No, no, no. This team is, is legit. And for sure, the schedule does get quite a lot softer for them coming out of the all-star break here. And, you know, if they end up by 
five, six in the standings in the Eastern Conference, it will not be surprising at all. Uh, and this is a good bet on team over the last half of the season. And you can credit a lot to it. You know, they have veteran leadership at the guard positions and they play their butts off every night. They play so hard. And, you know, it's it's been a tough season for them because of the, um, you know, specifically playing in Tampa and the travel and, you know, the schedule wasn't kind. Um, but all that is about to change on a dime. And uh, they're going to be a great bet on in the second half. So uh, any team for you that has kind of flummoxed you, right? Like for me personally, it's been the Phoenix Suns. I, I didn't expect Phoenix to really be this good. And I think you can kind of quibble if you look at this run that they're on in terms of opponents and how good some of the opponents have been. You know, they lose last night. Was it last night? All these days melt together again. Uh, to Charlotte, right? Um, and at the end, there was maybe a foul on the potential game-winning shot or tying shot. Uh, we can talk about that. But regardless, like it seemed, Phoenix to me is a team that, uh, from what I had projected them to be, they're much better and they're covering numbers at a higher rate, of course, than I really expected. Is there a team that has been that for you this season? I've had a tough time with the Suns as well. Uh, and I will add to that list, the Knicks. Um, everything I yeah. put together on the Knicks uh, tells me that this team stinks, and yet they can still consistently win and cover in games and situations where they just shouldn't shouldn't happen. And I'm looking at all the advanced data, and there's stuff that always regresses to the mean. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've talked a lot already about uh, kind of opponent three-point percentage um, for whatever reason. The teams that are playing the Knicks, just they can't hit shots, right. even when they're open. And do, do you I, have like the Knicks are giving up the third? Yeah, sure. Well, I was wondering because I, like I think it was two weeks ago, Winhorst had this ridiculous stat uh, on his podcast because I don't obviously have access to these second spectrum numbers, but that like the expected field goal percentage uh, that the Knicks were actually giving up should be dead last in the NBA, but they're tops. Yes, for, like, yeah, for... <laughs> yes. It's, it's insane. If you look at so it, and actually I'll, I'll I'll shoot you a link because there are some free uh, kind of NBA advanced box score cool. stats where you can screen by um, open three point percentage, wide open three point percentage, right? Like, and if you sort by okay, well, how many wide open threes are the Knicks giving up a night? And it's it's a it's a staggering number. It's like the third highest in the NBA in terms of just guys, no defender within six feet of the shooter, which is like you know, oh, every one of those should be going in practically, right? But then you so so the Knicks are top three in allowing wide open threes, but then the wide open three point percentage against them is best in the league, which means that for whatever reason, the guy who's got his ball in his hands, who's wide freaking open, is just he can't convert and. That stuff regresses to the mean so, so regularly. And I've been waiting for it to happen to the Knicks for like 10 games. Yep. <laughs> it's like, come on. Like, how is, you know, like this should, you know, they're going up against teams that bury wide open threes. They should get their butts kicked. Like, you know, I, I laid the points with the, um, the Warriors thinking that that was a perfect opportunity for this exact angle to manifest. Uh, and even that one was a sweat. That came down to like the last... You know, go you know, hitting, hitting, right. uh, you know, you know, free throws. And you needed I was like, an Ubre foul God, at like, the this end. Shouldn't even be close. Yeah. As, yes. Exactly. So you know, you shouldn't. You know, I, you know, it's 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 uh, that still feel the Knicks still still feel like fool's gold to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, credit to them for you know playing hard and you know you know taking this the beginning of this season seriously. And you know, maybe they deserve a playoff spot for it. That that's fine. 
Um, but uh, at some point, the covering is going to, you know, the, the, the you know, you're going to start seeing them as pickums or small favorites against, uh, you know, teams that, uh, you know, happen to have an average or a good night shooting and they're going to lose by double digits. And I'm, I'm looking forward to being against them in a lot of those spots. So really quickly, uh, you mentioned the, the Suns as well. So what has it been with you? Because for me, you know, when I was looking over some of their personnel and uh, the projections for what they could be. Uh, like to me, I don't. I don't think they should be this good defensively. Like right now, cleaning the glass, which you know sorts out yeah. the garbage time numbers. They're seventh in overall defensive efficiency. You know, I projected a team that was going to be like fifteenth or lower in that regard, and that's just not the case. Yeah, no, a hundred percent agreed. That's exactly what it is. And, and if, even if you break it down from a personnel standpoint, like DeAndre Ayton is somehow a bad defender. Um, and you know that yes, they added Chris Paul, and a, you know, if you add someone of his savvy and his. Uh, you know, kind of floor general smarts. Your team overall is just going to probably overperform in some areas. It happens to be defense for whatever reason, um, but it's it that has been surprising. Uh, I expected the the Suns to be, uh, you know, the the I expected them to be, um, you know, a, a playoff caliber team. So the fact that they're in the mix here for a playoff spot in the West is not shocking. Um, but there's been a number of times where I've been more than happy to uh, to try to go against them. And uh, and they've they've been able to come up with the goods, uh, and then sure enough, a night like last night, the market just couldn't get enough of the Suns yep. against the Charlotte Hornets, and they lose outright. So it's 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 a very strange season so far for the Suns, and you know they they obviously they were one of the funner stories of the restart in the bubble last year. That that eight game stretch where they win all eight. Um, and they put up some absolutely spectacular numbers, just a true team performance top to bottom. Like they all got buy-in from the coach. They were enjoying the bubble, it seemed like. Um, and they probably deserved, uh, you know, the, the grizzly spot in that playing game, if we're being honest. <laughs> but that's a different story. Um, you know, it's, it, it was interesting to see them carry that into the season and, you know, continue to kind of come together as a team, you know, with the addition of Chris Paul. Um, but it's still a thin team. Uh, you know, they're probably going to be a bet against for me in round one of the playoffs, matchup dependent. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you, and, and I don't understand why their defensive numbers are as good as they are, considering the personnel and the way that each guy's playing. Uh, Drew Dinsick, again, at whale underscore capper, NFL, NBA, handicapper, NBC Sports Bet, uh, as well as host of the Deep Dive Pod. Drew, this was an awesome conversation. I can nerd out for a while, but I don't want to take much of your time, so uh, hopefully we can have you on again <laughs> uh, down the stretch. But thanks again, man. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, you got it. This is a ton of fun, and best of luck. Right, thanks, man. Again, Drew Densick, NFL, NBA handicapper, NBC Sports Edge, and check out that deep dive pod. Very much worth uh, a listen. All right, let's welcome in our next guest. Andy Larson is nice enough to give us some time. Utah Jazz NBA beat writer over at the Salt Lake Tribune. You can follow him on Twitter at Andy B. Larson. So, Andy, uh, thank you very much, first off, to give us some time today. And we can't have a basketball podcast and the debut of a sports betting basketball podcast to talk about the hottest team in the association, the Utah Jazz, uh, continue to dominate their competition. Now 26-6 and six on the season, three-and-a-half game lead over the Clippers for the top spot. In the middle of one of the most insane runs we've seen from a sports betting perspective, 22-2 and two straight up in their last 24, but 21-3 and three against the spread in their last 24 games. So, Andy, I'll ask you this. You know, what changed with this team? Because this is generally a team that kind of ran it back this year, right? And we saw what happened in the postseason. You blow the 3-1 lead. And when you run it back, you expect, okay, pretty good team. But this team is better while largely the same. So what changed? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think last year there actually was some, uh, you know, uh, chemistry issues. You know, there you go back to February of last year, and I was I was looking at my articles from back then, and 
you know, at the state one year ago, the Jazz lost by 20 to the Suns at home. And, you know, that was a very different Phoenix Suns team then than it is now. So um, it, it was a team that was not defending well. It was a team that was not passing the ball. It was a team that was kind of arguing about shots and whether or not Donovan Mitchell would take that as many or, or Mike Conley would, would get involved or how they could get Rudy Gobert more lobs at the rim. And it just seems like this team doesn't care about any of that right now because they're just sharing the ball so effectively. They're defending as a, as one. And, you know, as you point out, the the record in, against both good teams and bad teams this year against the spread, however you look at it, they're just blowing teams out kind of from this team-first mentality. And because now they're kind of finally using all of their various talented pieces, you know, and they do have a very deep eight-man rotation that, uh, is is you know a, a uh, we thought could be a really talented team in the NBA and they they're finally putting it back together this year. So let's talk a big picture offensively, and we'll get to the other stuff and the individuals like uh, Jordan Clarkson, who's been like a different player it seems uh, since the beginning of his career. Mike Conley, but you go over some of the numbers for the first few like these last few seasons, right? And, and the Jazz have always been a team that, in terms of three point shooting, ha- have always prioritized corner threes, right? Each of the last four years, uh, they have been second or higher in terms of at least frequent of corner three-point attempts, but the overall three-point attempts, it, it skyrocketed. Last year, according to Cleaning the Glass, 38.2% of their attempts from beyond the arc. This year, it's 45.3%. So we can put really simplistically, they're, they're taking more threes, but what are the intricacies of this? Like, it's not just taking more threes, right? There's some more ball penetration. It's kicking out and dishing to other guys. Or is it just as simple as, hey, look, we're just taking more three-point shots and they're going in at an insanely high rate? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's quite that simple, but, you know, you basically, I think it goes back to last year when, you know, the, the Jazz go on the, the hiatus between March and July, and Quinn Snyder's looking at the team and trying to figure out what he should do differently, and Bojan Bogdanovic goes down with the, the wrist uh, surgery, and, and they have to figure out kind of how to generate that same number of threes that they were even taking last year, that 35 a game, without their best three-point shooter in, in bogey, and what they found was like we we just need to t- have Donovan Mitchell take more threes, have Mike Conley take more threes, give Jordan Clarkson the greenest light he's ever had in his career. And now that you've added Bogdanovich back into that picture, now all of a sudden you know you're at that 42 threes a game level that that you talked about. So you know I I think it's coming from obviously a lot of different setups. You know they're they're taking far more transition threes than they ever did. Um, they're they're focusing on running the ball. You know, Quinn Snyder's teams have typically been a slow-paced team, and this team is actually kind of funny because they offensive rebound so well. Their pace metric is actually low, but they are a fast team. They use offensive possessions very quickly. If you you know go on, on unpredictable.com, for example, as the number of uh, seconds, average seconds used per possession, the Jazz are in the top ten. And, and so, you know, all of a sudden, they're a kind of up and down the court team that are getting these shots up very quickly. And, you know, instead of kind of hedging and hawing and being like, you know, can we get that corner three at the very end of the possession? They're looking at it and it's like, you know, if, if we have any airspace to fire here, we should. Because, you know, a, a decent three-point shot for a Boyan Bogdanovich or a Jordan Clarkson or a Mike Conley is actually a really good offensive possession. You know, mm-hmm. if you can make a, a, a 35 36% kind of three, uh, over and over and over again, the Jazz will take that shot every time right now. And so they've they've kind of made it easier on themselves by taking shots earlier on in possessions, 
And and that's made all the difference as far as their offensive efficiency goes. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest differences. If you look at them statistically, you know, as I mentioned, they've always kind of exploited the corners. Non-corner three-point frequency has gone from 27.2% to 32.9. So essentially a third of their uh, three-point shots are just coming from, you know, beyond the arc and outside of the corner. So it's been really, really fascinating to watch. And what's been more fascinating to watch, you know, the overall scheme has clearly changed, uh, but clearly you know, some players have changed, right? And I really wanted to start with Mike Conley. What has been the difference? Because last, last summer, right, about a day, two days before they got Mike Conley, I ran to the window, bet him at about 40-1 to 1 to win the NBA Finals, you know, because I thought, hey, this is a team that with Mike Conley, that's going to make a massive difference. They're loaded with catch-and-shoot three-point guys. Uh, they have a lot of good defensive pieces, too. They're relatively deep. Like, I think this is a team that can make a run, but ultimately didn't work out. It's not all on Conley's fault, but he's clearly more comfortable now. Is it that simple? Is he just more comfortable now playing in this different role, a, a role that is much more different than the one that he found in Memphis? Yeah, I, I think that's kind of the question is, is, you know, what took him so long to kind of figure it out? And I think we we kind of overestimate how easy it is to do. I mean, mm-hmm. Mike had played his entire career with Marc Gasol and in Memphis without a secondary scorer next to him. I mean, maybe Rudy Gay was probably the best scorer he played next to, and Rudy Gay is a very different caliber of player from Donovan Mitchell. And uh, so I think two things he kind of figured out. One, uh, that relationship with Rudy Gobert in the pick and roll. Uh, Marc Gasol is going to be mostly a pick and pop big. Is going to get down inside, kind of at uh, a different pace, quite frankly, than than Rudy. And you're you're not going to throw Marcus Hall a whole lot of lobs, you know. And and Rudy, if you're not throwing in a, a lob, there's not much Rudy can do with it. And and so kind of the the adjustment on pick and roll timing and when and how to use the big man, I think, really honestly took Mike Conley a year to figure out. Uh, and, and then the other thing was, I think, more of a coaching adjustment where. Uh, originally, the Jazz had Donovan Mitchell on the ball more last season than they did this season. Uh, and, and this year, they've really kind of given Mike Conley the reins to say, "Hey, we're going to give you, uh, we're going to give you the ball at the beginning of games, and we're also going to give you the ball in these bench minutes, these the end of every quarter, uh, at the end of it, first and third quarters, beginning of second and fourth quarters, when teams are playing their opposing bench units, the Jazz put Mike Conley and Rudy Gobert out there, and they just kill it." You know, and and I think having Mike Conley play in that role, which is kind of primary ball handler, you're absolutely in charge of everything that happens. And this is what you did so well in Memphis for, you know, a kind of a guaranteed 16 minutes a game really kind of opens up his comfort level for for what he can do during the rest of the game as well. So um, he's he's had the ball in his hands more and, and the results been a much more confident and more efficient Mike Conley. So uh, I think now is it the time all melts together. I think it was like two weeks ago now. Uh, Tim Bond Temps ESPN uh, released a piece. It was like a straw poll of MVP voting. And uh, I think a lot of people are surprised to see that three members of the Utah Jazz each got at least one vote. Uh, it was Conley, it was Gobert, and it was Donovan Mitchell. And, and I think the Donovan Mitchell MVP candidacy thing uh, has been a hot topic, at least, you know, that I've discussed. Uh, it's been here on the network because, you know, from a, a, a betting perspective, a couple of weeks ago, right around that Boston game where he scored or assisted on 17 straight games to close them out, uh, you know, he was about 100 to 1. Now we're talking some places as short as 20 to 1 to win MVP, uh, as high as 60 to 1 to win the MVP still. So in your mind, as we watch this team, and even a game like last night, right, against the uh, the Los Angeles Lakers, where the scoring is relatively balanced, I think he didn't even score until they had like a 12 to 13 point lead. Uh, what's Mitchell's role in all of this? How important is he to this team? Is there a realistic campaign for Donovan Mitchell to potentially compete for an MVP? As it seems, all the candidates around him, right, for talking LeBron, who seems all of a sudden get lazy first year LeBron, uh, 
uh, with the Lakers is starting to show up. Uh, the Joel Embiid-led Sixers are performing very well, but still have taken some bad losses, especially those Portland teams. Nikola Jokic's team is barely above 500. Is there a campaign out there for a Donovan Mitchell, and what is the importance of his role with this team? You know, it's funny. I, I Obviously, Donovan Mitchell is in, tremendously important to the Jazz and is a very, very good player. Um, if you go back to that Tim Bontemps article, though, it's it's Rudy Gobert who got four votes yep. and, my, and Donovan Mitchell who only got two and, and Mike Conley with one, you know, and I, I, I think it's it's hard to figure out sometimes who this team's MVP is. And so for for that reason, uh, you know, and and quite frankly, the reason that if you look at Donovan's stat lines, just kind of you go to basketball reference, plug them up. Uh, it, it's just it, it's mostly the same season that that Donovan Mitchell had last year. And and so I think Donovan is obviously very critical to what the Jazz do in, in terms of, yeah, scoring the ball, in terms of he really has upped his assist rate. That's been kind of the biggest difference between this year and last year. And so there is there have been improvements, um, but it's hard to say that, you know, a, a change in Donovan Mitchell has changed uh, the way this Jazz team plays and, and to the point where he's he's MVP caliber. So, you know, as... As a non-better, for me, I, that seems like probably not a bet I would make. That being said, we also have to acknowledge that Donovan Mitchell is playing incredibly well right now and, and is kind of answering the criticism uh, of him of, of not having an, a well-rounded game. As you point out last night, nearly got a triple-double despite shooting 4 of 16 from the floor you know, kind of figured out how to impact the game in other ways. That's Andy Larson. Again, Utah Jazz, NBA beat writer, Salt Lake Tribune, at Andy B. Larson uh, up on Twitter. So let's talk about the guy then who got the most MVP votes. Uh, that, of course, is Rudy Gobert. Um, he has been absolutely fantastic from a defensive standpoint. So walk us through what this team has done defensively because they're a top-two team offensive and defensive efficiency at this point right now. And when I watch with my eyes, Andy, you know, I see a lot of drop coverage on pick and rolls. And Rudy Gobert is long enough to be able to drop off of that and still challenge floaters and things like that and still be able to get back and protect the rim. You know, we have conversations all the time about a team like Milwaukee, right? A team like Milwaukee who consistently drops their big and really emphasizes rim protection, uh, but they still, for some reason, give up so much along the perimeter. Uh, what are the Utah Jazz doing defensively that has allowed them to be, you know, frankly, they were good. They were top, what, 10 last year in defensive efficiency, uh, but this good, they're insane on defense and they get all the credit offensively. Gobert's a big part of it. Uh, walk us through their defensive scheme here and what they've been doing so well around Gobert. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and they they filter everything to Gobert, right? So yep. um, that means that they they stay attached more than Milwaukee does on the perimeter. You know, Milwaukee is kind of a it has allowed the most threes in the league, and it's it's not it, it, theoretically playing drop coverage. You can just kind of play two on two and pick and roll. The problem with th what the Bucks realized, and and it won Giannis the Defensive Player of the Year award last year, so you know it, it's working. Is that or at least has worked is that having Giannis as kind of the the guy playing free safety for you allows you to get a lot of steals, allows you to get a, a lot of blocks, and allows you to end a lot of possessions. Whereas the Jazz don't get a lot of steals. And, and instead, what they do is just filter everything to Gobert and, and make your life, make you take mathematically tough shots. So it's just 2v2 in the pick and roll. And then quite frankly, once that guy gets screened and the Jazz perimeter defender goes over the pick, it's it's a temporary two on one for the offense uh, against Rudy, and then that guy, that perimeter guy, kind of scrambles to stay attached and and kind of get a a backside block or backside contest of of that mid range shot. But um, it is largely because of Rudy Gobert. You know, I think you have to give Royce O'Neal a lot of credit too for what he's done on the perimeter, kind of individually. But when you can guard pick and roll and and kind of two on two in those situations, 
the other three guys on the court can stay attached to the perimeter shooters. And that's why the Jazz also don't give up any threes, you know, again and again and again, is because uh, the Jazz are playing this kind of 2v2 style of defense. Now, we'll see if that can kind of hold up in, in the playoffs, right? That's the big question is because the, the Denver Nuggets absolutely kind of killed that, that yep. style of defense with, with how good Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic are in, in that two-on-two game. So it, it will be matchup dependent. And, you know, I think they, they've started to implement some tweaks to that and, and kind of play with what they can do defensively a little bit in recent games. But, you know, they have their bread and butter and they're very good at it. And, yeah, I think, you know, adjusting for the playoffs is, is a real question for, for kind of what comes next. So it's amazing when you watch this team because there's so many different individual stories, right? Like, you know, we, we talked about Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, uh, right? Rudy Gobert. Uh, you, of course, mentioned Royce O'Neal, who's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, the, one of the guys that I have been most impressed with, and I think a lot of people are right now, he's about minus 450, depending on where you shop, uh, to win sixth man of the year. Where did they find this version of Jordan Clarkson? Like, what happened here? Because, you know, you go through his time with the Lakers and with the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. This was a guy who I think a lot of people thought was kind of a chucker. If you look at something in terms of, like, his mid-range attempts, things like that, you know, he was a guy who just tried to find open looks and the frequency of shot attempts. To go from at the beginning of his career taking 19, 27, 30% of its attempts from three to now 57% and being a knockdown shooter at that, what changed with Jordan Clarkson? How much credit do we give Quinn Snyder and the staff? Like, because they got a gem and this kid has been unbelievable. Yeah, you know, for sure. And, and I was one of those people that, you know, saw Jordan Clarkson as kind of a short term bench boost when the Jazz's bench was struggling so badly last year that it just kind of made sense for them to get someone who could do anything, and, and that was Jordan. Um, and, and obviously, he's just been absolutely terrific as a huge part of what the Jazz do. Uh, I, I think it actually started with the Cavs, and it started with John Bayline, as, as weird as that sounds. But he, he said, hey, Jordan, you know, we need you to continue to develop your game so that you have a a three-point shot and, and that you can consistently go to that rather than kind of the long twos that he built his career on before that. And, you know, I think obviously every player works on three-point shots and, you know, that Jordan Clarkson is not the only one that uh, has has kind of changed his game over the last seven years. But I think it was such a huge change for him because of the just the quantity of shots that he took from, from kind of long two kind of range. Um, and so then he gets to Utah, and instead of having a coach that asked him to kind of fit in with, with the offense, and, you know, he'd been traded to a good team before, the Cavs with LeBron. And, I, you know, I think the, the ask there with Ty Lu was, hey, you're, you're going to fit in with this LeBron James team and that you're going to stand in the corner and kind of take these open threes. And instead, Quinn Snyder said, no, you're, you're going to be – you know, our, our bench creator, and you're going to, um, we want you to take every single open three that you ever get, and then you it, uh, can, you know, you absolutely have freedom to roam on these kind of ISO uh, plays that he does, where he somehow kind of bullies his way to the rim, despite being skinny. You know, Zach Lowe called him the, the thin Boris Diaw uh, <laughs> in an article a couple of weeks ago, and it actually is an apt comparison. Nope. Like, that is what Jordan Clarkson kind of does to get to the rim is just kind of like fakes and weirdly moves his body and twists and turns. And somehow he, he's four feet away from the rim and has this killer layup finishing ability to, to, that he can get off in traffic no matter where he is. So um, it's a tremendous story. And it's, it's absolutely, again, one of the reasons the Jazz are wh where they are is because 
Jordan Clarkson has turned from inefficient chucker to efficient animal that that opposing bench lineup can't stop. Uh, for those who are listening right now, to give you an idea of the change in Jordan Clarkson's game, his rookie year, 158 field goal attempts and eight fouls drawn uh, from a long mid-range, right? That's qualified as, you know, shots about 14 feet uh, inside the three-point arc as well. This year, he has taken a total of six of those field goal attempts. And I, and I would assume, Andy, <laughs> a, a good chunk of those are probably like toe-on-the-line uh, three-point attempts, are they not? Yeah, I, a couple of them has been, and, and yep. it, it, you're totally right. Like, that's it, it's just a huge sea change in, in who he is as a player. So uh, we have we have all of this put together, and you and I were talking about this right before we, we started recording and came on the air. We have seen this before from Utah, right? Go back a couple of years ago. They win the first-round series against Oklahoma City, but they lose to Houston in five, right? In Before the playoffs that year, they had gone on a 21-2 and run. We've seen really big surges from the Utah Jazz in years past. So I kind of asked you a similar question at the beginning, and I'll ask you a similar version of it here. But when we get to the postseason, what is going to be the difference? Because we've seen massive runs from Utah, but we've also seen those same years end in failure. What is going to change for them in the postseason? Is it going to be a matchup? Do, they, do you need them to potentially get the bracket to fall the right way? I personally think a team like the Los Angeles Clippers uh, presents some matchup issues for them. But what do you expect when we get to the postseason? We're a long way away, but what's going to be different with this team? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think this is the most talented roster. And, you know, we say that this is a, uh, you, you know, it's it's almost the same roster as last year. But you have to remember, again, Bogdanovich had wrist surgery last year during the playoffs that Jazz didn't have Derek Favors and, and were just, you know, hemorrhaging point during those bench lineups. That hasn't been the case. And, you know, even if you compare those 19-2 and two runs that the Jazz have had, this one's coming earlier on in the season when I think teams are honestly trying a little bit harder than sometimes they do in the dog days of March and April. Um, and that the Jazz are just, you know, spanking opponents, as you say, just, you know, beating the spread, beating them by double digits and, and so on and so forth. It's, I do think margin of victory matters in this league. And um, certainly we've seen that. But, you know, we've also seen, like you point out, the Jazz fail in the playoffs before. We've seen a great regular season teams like Milwaukee Bucks last year fail in the playoffs before. So, I, I you know, I think it's reasonable to wonder, can they do this in the playoffs and, and win four playoff series? And, you know, I, I think that's where you will have to rely on that increased talent a little bit. And you will have to see Donovan Mitchell kind of step up and show that he can be a one-on-one -on -one scorer against the league's best defenders. And, and quite frankly, he struggled to do that at times. The Jazz's losses to the Houston Rockets, you know, he, he got locked up by Trevor Ariza or P.J. Tucker. or uh, and, and so I think that makes it tough to, uh, you know, I, I think the, the questions are fair until proven otherwise and and so i i think this is an unbelievable run and, and i think you should believe in the jazz more than you've ever believed in them i think you're right that you know the clippers and lakers do give some matchup problems and yet i think the jazz also give them some matchup yep. problems in terms of how do they start to defend the perimeter and you know i i think rudy gobert is actually uh, can stay on the floor against those two teams because you're you're talking about mark gasol uh, Montrez Harrell, you're talking about Serge Ibaka, you're talking about Avicii Zubac, uh, are, are kind of traditional-ish big men in today's league. And, you know, then the Lakers can go small with AD at the five. Um, can the Jazz defend that is, I think, a, a, a reasonable question. So, you know, I, you start to get into all these kind of matchup questions and, and we'll see how the Jazz answer them. I think teams are kind of holding back right now because they know that they will have to kind of run through the Jazz in order to, to achieve their NBA Finals goals. And um, that's going to be the real question in the playoffs is when the teams, you know, when, when Ty Lue and 
and Frank Vogel start making their adjustments, can the Jazz kind of keep up um, from from that point of view? Because that has been the question, uh, the the thing behind their playoff losses in the last few years. But uh, as far as a regular season resume goes, this team has the the best resume of any of these teams that they've that they've had, you know, since the Stockton Malone days. He's Andy Larson again, Utah Jazz, NBA beat writer, Salt Lake Tribune at Andy B. Larson. Larson is L-A-R-S-E-N. Andy, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it. Awesome conversation, and hopefully we can get you on again as we get closer to the postseason. Yeah, great talk, great question, questions, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yep, you got it. This is the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast. Interact with the show on Twitter at me, JVT, at Roach underscore 97, and at VSIN Live. Last few minutes here on the first episode of the Hardwood Handicappers podcast. That is Hardwood Handicappers with a dollar sign instead of an S and wings on the logo. Absolutely fantastic. All right. A couple of things to clean up before we head out of the first episode. First off, uh, I mentioned this a couple of times at the top. Just to reiterate here, there's been a very big push for LeBron is not the most important Laker, let alone an MVP. I really disagree with at least that statement. I'm totally open. And I mentioned this when we were talking about the MVP cases overall totally open to the fact that LeBron is not the MVP of the league. That's perfectly fine, especially during the six-game stretch where a couple of them, he has looked like disinterested, frustrated LeBron, and he has a tendency to kind of, for lack of a better term, get in his feelings when it comes to teams not performing very well uh, and really show it on the court, be really vocal with his body language with that on the court. Uh, but to have this narrative now pushed out by a lot of people that he is not even as important as Anthony Davis, I would say I, I would really disagree with it. And I want to get Jason Weingarten on. He contributes for Point Spread Weekly uh, over, over at VSIN. It is VSIN, the podcast network. Um, but Jason wrote in his Point Spread Weekly piece this week, vsin.com slash subscribe for those who don't. Uh, quote, I don't watch a ton of NBA games, but I do follow the league for futures betting. And after a week or so of watching the Lakers play without Anthony Davis, I don't see how anyone with the most valuable player vote could argue that LeBron James deserves to be the favorite. He's not even the MVP of the Lakers. That was part of his piece uh, titled Loss of Davis Shows LeBron Not NBA MVP. Uh, Rex Byers, risk manager over at Superbook Sports, tweeted out last night and went back and forth with him on a couple of these. You know, with Anthony Davis, says Rex, the Lakers were good enough to win an NBA championship without him. They would struggle against any Western Conference playoff contender and basically have zero chance to beat Utah as teams are currently constructed. This is how the MVPs should be decided. Again, totally down with the case that LeBron James is not the most valuable player. But if you're trying to make the case that LeBron is not the most valuable Laker, that is somewhere where I'll, I'll disagree wholeheartedly. And just some of the numbers behind what we're talking about here. LeBron, Dan, according to Cleaning the Glass, LeBron James on the court. Anthony Davis off the court. Net rating plus three. Offensive rating 110.9. Defensive rating 107.9. Davis on the court. LeBron off the court. Net rating negative 5.9. Offensive rating 112.7. It's better, but guess what happens to the defense? 118.5. That is an abhorrent defensive rating. And that is in the minutes without LeBron James on the floor. And a part of the factor here that I think the anti-LeBron campaign has kind of forgotten is this Anthony Davis injury coincided with Dennis Schroeder's health and safety protocol and him having to miss this time as well because of that. They have no shot creation outside of LeBron James. They lack three-point shooters. And guess what, by the way, when Schroeder and Davis come back, they still lack for three-point mm -hmm. shooters, but they have no guys who can create in isolation. So... That's my thing. Uh, that's all I wanted to say on it. Again, I'm not something for LeBron. I hope he wins MVP. I have a three-to-one ticket on him, right, to win MVP because I do think that at that time that was value and he's deserving and the numbers have dictated that. But there is totally a case to be made 
that he's not the MVP. But there is not a case to be made that he's not the most valuable Laker at this point. So I'm off my soapbox. We move on from that. This is your time to shine. Your Roach's ramblings. What do you have? You text me all the time, and I ignore <laughs> you all the time, mainly because I'm busy, and then, like, time passes. I'm like, well, I don't want to respond to a text, like, two hours later. So what do you got? Okay. Number one, Roach's ramblings. We need to adjust how we talk about impact of veteran players in the NBA. This is something I've been on for a while. Okay. And just because somebody has been playing in the league for eight years and is a journeyman doesn't mean that he's a veteran player who's going to impact culture and winning in a locker room. Is there something specific? It's Tr Tristan Thompson's the most recent one to me. Oh, Tristan Thompson. Related, of course. Oh, it's, sorry. Okay. Just because you've been around and he was carried to the finals by LeBron doesn't mean that he's this essential locker room piece for a team. I hate this. Austin Rivers is now considered a veteran player. Like, Technically, he is, but, but I, I understand you your understand, point. Like, it's just like veteran no. does not equate to output, does not equate to positive impact on a team. When I think of a veteran player that is essential to a team, that's Chris Paul. Like that is that who that term should be used for. These are guys who have been around for a while and have, have not like been able to build something for themselves, mm -hmm. so they're journeymen. That's one. Okay. Two, Jeremy Grant minus two thirty to be most improved player. Why? It blows my mind. No way. No way. It, I would actually argue he's taken a step back in a sense because now he doesn't impact winning on a team. Okay, well, I'd argue that's, that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> winning is most improved and winning should not, you know, they, they don't mm. go hand in hand. But I will say this. I agree with the sentiment of minus 230 implied probability that he's going to win this <laughs> award 69.7% of the time or a 69.7% chance that he's going to win. Uh, I would agree that that is a really high price. Yeah. So then the question becomes, and you and I are in agreement on this, at least if you're taking your shot in this market, where is it? It's Julius Randle. I agree. Absolutely. Followed by kind of against what I believe for most improved, but he's playing so well. Possibly look at Zach Levine, too. No, get out of here. Really? Why make, is that? Make the case for Julius Randle. Okay, Julius Randle, he's having... You know, he's a good story for most improved. He's a He was a higher draft pick who didn't perform up to par. He came out with an injury. You know, he's bounced around the league for a couple years. Now he seems to find himself in New York. He's part of the Knicks, who everyone pays attention to. That helps in this process, right? Mm -hmm. First-time All-Star. He is pulling a team that everyone thought was a joke into – I would say definitely I would like the chances for them to be to play in. Maybe an AC, like – in the playoff picture. Mm -hmm. I just don't think there's anyone who's more impressive on the list. Jalen Brown is like the third on the odds board, and he doesn't check. Like, I, he's too good of a player. It, it, you know, we've talked about this before. He's too good of a player to be most improved because he's taking the same jump every year, and now it's just kind of compounded to him being who he is this year. I, I just don't think – if you're looking at – Christian Wood would be great, but he's missed so many games now. You kind of he's – out, he's out of that. Discussion for me. What do you think about with the Wood thing? I know you love Christian Wood. Well, what I, do you think? He he was deserving at the time. Yeah, the injuries, absolutely. The injuries take him out of it, right? The injuries mm -hmm. are are a massive part of it, and you know he can come back and start to make the push. But that's why he's fallen. Yeah, right. Right. No, nothing due to his own fault. But to your point, uh, to give you some numbers behind why I would agree with uh, one Julius Randle from an overview standpoint, usage highest of his career by far. Uh, his highest usage rate prior to this was 27.5% uh, of possessions. This year, 28.2. Uh, but on top of that, uh, by far also, assist rate, 25.3% is his assist rate this year. What percentage of his teammates made shots does he assist on? He has improved 
as a facilitator, as a passer. His three-point frequency has jumped this year as well. He's taking more three-point shots while also upping his percentage from 29% last year. Career high, 34%. That was the 2018-2019 season when he's with the Pelicans. This year, he's already matched the output, at least in terms of attempts, and he's shooting 42% from beyond the arc. Uh, he is their best player, and that is why, like, you look across the board, statistically he has made the jump in a lot of key areas, mm -hmm. a lot of key areas, and that is why I think if you're taking your shot here, 20 to 1 on a guy like that, yeah. where there's a real case to be made almost everywhere, that is what I would do. And so that's why I would agree a wholeheartedly at 20 to 1, where Jeremy Grant right now, again, what was it, minus 240? Minus 230. 30. That's a little high for me, yeah. and that's where I'm taking my shot is Julius Randle at 20 to 1. Real quick, why don't you like the Levine case? He sucks on defense. Okay, there, so there's no okay. there's no improvement whatsoever defensively for this guy. I got you. And that is something like it's great you can score, and he's kind of always been the same player. There's no there's been no improvement in his defensive game yeah, whatsoever. I'm I'm not a Levine guy at all. I just saw like at 25 to one on DraftKings. I was like, hey, you know, that's pretty good for the Bulls being a six seed right now. Like you got you got to like that. Moving on, I have two more. Um, this goes back to the Jazz thing. So I was watching the Oklahoma State Texas uh, Tech game. Okay, went, went to overtime. People talk, complain about quality of play in the NBA and they love college basketball, right? College basketball play is so sloppy. Just because it's competitive doesn't mean the quality of play is high, right? Mm -hmm. it's, I was watching this game. Mac McClellan took some of the worst shots down the stretch that I, I could even imagine to try to seal a game. And I just was sitting there laughing to myself because I'm not a big college basketball watcher, but when I do, I'm always reminded... Wow, you know why I love the NBA? Because everything they do is polished. Watching these guys, these I don't want to call them kids because I'm the same age as some of them. But what, I call them kids now. I'm yeah, 30. You're allowed man. to. You're 30. Um, it's just the quality of play argument is one of the laziest arguments. Me, me, media anti-NBA guys love lazy arguments, and that's the laziest one, in my opinion. The second laziest argument this year, mm -hmm. or take, uh, there's one ball on the nets. Who, how are they going to figure it out, Jonathan? Right. There's only three of the smartest guys in the NBA. Like, let, let's just listen. You don't have to talk about the NBA if you don't want to. Like, don't give me these lazy NBA arguments. You ready for the Celtics? All right, let's go. You're also, <sighs> to, to set this up for people, we're going to have Roach's ramblings at the end, let you get everything off your chest that I ignore. Uh, also, um, you are a diehard Boston Celtics fan, and at least for this episode, too, and maybe we won't have our Celtics report regularly every week. Uh, but the Celtics have been a hot topic of conversation. Yeah. Uh, they are horrible on the road. They are coming off of, uh, I say, their worst performance of the season where they did not give a about that performance against the Atlanta Hawks offensively. I think they have some issues in terms of their design. Uh, and they're a team that is, I think, they're, are they under 500 now because of that loss with Atlanta? Two, two games under 500. So they're two games under 500, uh, well on their way to cementing the under on their win total. I think they have to go 30 and 11 or 30 and 10 the rest of the way okay. to yeah. get over, something in that range. So what's up with your team? You are Celtics reporter. You are the guy. You have the <laughs> finger on the pulse. Because I've been asked about it, and I was like, personally, my answer has been, the reason why I bet them under is I saw these flaws. I didn't think it was going to be this bad, like the performance against mm -hmm. Atlanta, but I saw a team that was poorly constructed, that didn't have a lot of depth, and that was relying on two guys to generate their offense, and that's kind of what I've seen this year. They have half of an NBA roster. They have, they have so many dead spots on that roster and guys who cannot play important NBA minutes. And they knew that coming into the season. We all knew this. This was a thing that was talked about and discussed. They have lost so many guys over the years with no payoff. Which that's, that's, We don't need to dive into that. We all know right. it. But here we are now. They lose Gordon Hayward. They have this TPE, traded player exception. of, you know, They could trade for nearly anybody in the league with the number of 28.2 28 million. 
and they have not used it yet. Will Danny use it coming up to, to the deadline? What's the uh, what's the the little nugget? Have they not made an in trade or in season acquisition in six years? Six years since the Isaiah Thomas trade. All right. So Danny hasn't used that yet. So here we go. We've lost an asset on Hayward, and nothing back. And Kimball Walker, in my opinion, is becoming what could be he, – he might be becoming the worst contract in the NBA mm -hmm. because he's a small guard who's injury-prone. Kind of becoming a chucker. He's a, kind of a chucker, a liability in the, um, uh, in the postseason, and he, he's not healthy. I'm not a percentage guy. I'm not going to say he's never 100%, but he's never fully ready to go. And at 34, he's 34.4 million this year. Terry Rozier's 18.9. They could have had Rozier this whole time. Scary Terry. Right? It, it's, I think the big, my big takeaway from the Celtics these past couple of weeks is it's time to put blame on somebody because there's never blame. And I think the blame is, I think it's Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge is who to blame here. He did not put this team together correctly, and he knew it coming in. And I don't know if it's cockiness or laziness from him, but how did you just like idly let this team enter this season with the expectations it had? 15 and 17, and right now, outside of the top eight, they would find themselves in the play-in, but uh, dangerously close to actually falling out of the play-in spot because the teams are ahead of the Knicks and the Hawks, who you would expect at least the Hawks to potentially make a little bit more of a push, and the Hawks have taken two out of three against them as well. So. Yeah, and the Hawks are getting everybody back right now. It's... Oh, boy. Whew. All right. Well, that does it for Hardwood Handicappers Episode 1. Uh, again, uh, we want to thank, uh, as, as if they're listening, uh, but we do want to thank uh, the guests that were nice enough to give us some time here on the first episode. Drew Dinzik, of course, NFL NBA handicapper, NBC Sports Edge, host of the Deep Dive Pod. And, of course, you heard from Andy Larson as well, Utah Jazz NBA beat writer, Salt Lake Tribune, at Andy B. Larson up on Twitter. Uh, we are going to record these at least for the time being on Thursday, so you can look out for them uh, at those times. You know, when they come out is on Jacob, so if it takes a long time, you know who to blame as well. But until next week, we will see you talk to you then. Good luck. And uh, as we will end every single show, happy capping. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.